That cab has a dent in it. Back to the Blood and Black Rum podcast. I'm Ryan from Coldsploitation.com. I'm joining my co-host Martin. How's it going? Pretty good. We are back uh, after the holidays, after our episodes about uh, us turning 200 or something like that. I heard. And apparently, we're old. We're an old podcast now. Fogies. Good use of the word fogey. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you all listen to our 200th episode and. Shared in our our joys and our uh, celebration. And then now it's business as usual. Back to the old Blood and Black Rum podcast self. Um, and so what that means is we're going to do something, an episode that doesn't really jive with what we normally would do. You know, we, we've done a couple episodes in the past that are kind of offshoots of what we do here at Blood and Black Rum podcast. A lot of times we do horror. A lot of times we do action films. 70s and 80s cult movies. Uh, and Marvel superhero movies for whatever reason, but um, clicks, clicks is the answer. <laughs> the clicks, the clicks, clickbait. Um, but but today we got something a little bit different. Um, we've been meaning to do this movie for uh, quite a while since it was announced, and um, we have done a few other Wes Anderson movies in the past. Uh, we did uh, Moonrise Kingdom. No, we did not. We didn't. Nope. Did we just watch it together? We just watched it. We yeah, just so watched that, it together. Wow, I have... Um, that was before the podcast. Really? It was that long ago? I really yeah. thought that we actually did it. That was the same time we watched like two mules for Sister Sarah. Wow, really? Yes. I, it, was I, back, it was at your old apartment before, hmm. you got the ha- before you got your first house. So. I really could have swore we did it. Yeah, I guess did. not. But we did do The Life Aquatic. That's, yes. that, I'm, that I'm not making up. We did and The Life we, Aquatic. Yeah, we did The Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes, we did. So That's guys, the one I'm thinking of, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't know why I'm for one. I for one thing, I can't believe that Moonrise Kingdom is that old because I really feel like it just released <laughs> not too long ago. But no, it did not. Where did the time go? <laughs> so the Grand Budapest Hotel was the one that we did when that released. Interesting. Well, so we've done two Wes Anderson movies. So it's not outside of the realm of our wheelhouse to do Wes Anderson movies, though it does t- tend to mesh with what we normally do on the show. But we decided that we were going to do another one because, you know, it came out. We both wanted to see it. Uh, we did not get to see it in theaters because it came out during COVID and pandemic and all that. I don't even think, um, I mean, Wes Anderson films always get like a limited run. Mm-hmm. They're not uh, never playing everywhere. So I don't even think um, when it was in theaters, I don't even think it was available in Albany at the you know big theater there. Yeah, I, so don't. I remember. I remember being on the lookout for it, just you know. And I don't. I don't really recall it being around. Not that I was really looking at like movie theater showings and stuff like that. Um, 
But I remember when the Budapest, the Grand Budapest Hotel came out, um, that one was really only available in Albany at like a very finite amount of time. Like very, you know, specifically like if you don't get here within, you know, <laughs> two days, you're you're not going to see it. So I imagine um, the French Dispatch is probably much the same. And the thing that really makes that interesting is that this film has so many goddamn people in it. That you'd think it would be like one of the biggest movies that's going to be releasing because it's like name off the big people in Hollywood right now that are starring in, you know, actual films that are like Oscar worthy or, you know, that are being considered by the Academy and you'll name the people that are in this movie. But because it's Wes Anderson and because it's quirky and because, you know, it's it's got things in it that some people don't enjoy it's not getting a wide release just interesting to know which is i don't i've never really understood because uh i mean he is you know revered and well known you know he's kind of like the of you know of uh somebody who likes classic style cinema yeah you know he like you know He's, you know, he's like our modern day auteur. If you think about it, like yeah. How many, you know, how many, he's got, a, how many people ha- are like uh, have like that kind of specific of a style? He's a Fellini, you know. He's a Fellini of the uh, the new age. Um, you know, and and I guess I would say even more so. Like it almost seems like Noah Baumbach too has even become a little bit more well-known. Well, I shouldn't say well-known because it's like Wes Anderson is like a well-known secret, like that no one really talks about his movies. They don't, it doesn't really come up that much or in circles. And yet people do like them. People enjoy them. Lots of people watch them, but it's just like understated. It's not really talked about. And Noah Baumbach, you know, releasing marriage story, uh, getting wide acclaim, um, which we also did for the show. Um, that one seems to be even like have more of a wide release than well, that was on Netflix. That's true. It was on Netflix. So that kind of helps it. That's, that is true. Um, was it, I was say, wasn't Greenberg also released on Netflix too? Um, I don't, maybe might've been, but I just find it interesting that, you know, these, what you would call auteurs and, and, you know, Noah Baumbach and, and Wes Anderson did work very closely together for a while. Um, it's just interesting how they are popular and yet not very widely known or talked about. And especially not in like common film circles of like, you know, just people who go to the theater to see the, the latest blockbuster, the latest summer movie, things like that. The latest Marvel or superhero movie. Uh, I don't think Wes Anderson is really popular in, with those regards. It's more of like the people who enjoy what you would say is like snobbishly like film I enjoy film um, that tend to like Wes Anderson more. And those are, that, those are our people. <laughs> That's me and you. The Godard snobs. It's actually <laughs> kind of funny too because we're really not snobby film. I watch a lot of shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it right out. We've covered a lot of shit. How, how dare you? Strike Commando is <laughs> Leprechaun in space. I mean – I wouldn't say that I love that movie. I like that, you know, but, but I enjoy watching those types of shitty movies too. 
And so I'm not a film snob. I just I enjoy both realms. And I think too, as we get into the conversation about the French Dispatch, um, you know, the this film is is somewhat a, a conversation about the snobbishness that has kind of per, been perpetuated around Wes Anderson movies. It is, in some ways, a meta commentary about his movies. Um, it is also a culmination of his movies, which we'll talk about as we get further into the, to the show today. Um, but it, it does feel like a culmination of everything that Wes Anderson has done. And it, it is almost like taking the essence of those movies and like, kind of like squeezing it through cheesecloth. And then you get that meta commentary about the pretentiousness of it, uh, where it knows that it's pretentious. And it's slightly doing it on purpose. And we'll talk about all that as we get into it. Bef- but before we go into full details about the French Dispatch, uh, did you want to add anything to the intro? Did we, did we cover it enough? I think it's a good summary. It's a good starting point to talk about this movie. But before we get into all of that, <clears throat> let's take a moment and let's exhale because... Our mouths are probably a little bit spicy and a little, uh, little, uh, little hot and bothered up here because we've got a new beer on the show today and it's one brewed with peppers and we don't often do beers brewed with peppers. I don't, I don't know if you said we did the habanero scoping at one point. I think so. I don't know. I can't remember if it was on the podcast or I, if we did. I, yeah, I don't know if, if we did it on the show. We, we have done. Um, some spiced beers and I should say that I, you know, one of my first craft beers was actually a spiced beer if I don't count Sam Adams, but I remember going to some brewery in Boston and they had like a jalapeno stout and I was like, yeah, I got to try that. Sounds good. So one of my first craft beers was a jalapeno beer and today we have on the show a wit beer from, um, Fifth Hammer. And I don't know if I've had one other Fifth Hammer beer. I don't think we did it on the show, did we? Do you, did, did we have that IPA that I had with Fifth Hammer on the show? Just describe it and I might remember. <laughs> well, it was basic. I don't think we did. I honestly don't think we did. Um, Fifth Hammer is a new brewery, um, a, a new to me at least, and new, new to around here um, that is – from Long Island and it has kind of become similar to um, our areas like Equilibrium or um, Beer Tree and what they make. They make a lot of IPAs. They make a lot of experimental IPAs with different hops and they have experimental um, series of their IPAs. Uh, But this one, from Fifth Hammer was it stood out to me um, because it's not an IPA. It's a whip beer. We like whip beers. We like Belgian styles. And this one's called Solar Circuit. It's a whip beer with lime, orange, and habanero. That habanero gives you that hot and spicy flavor. <laughs> oh, God. Like I said, you've got to <laughs> exhale because it gives you that. My mouth is on fire. 
So this whip ear is really good because as we were talking about before the show, um, it gives off a very layered approach to the beer. You're not immediately getting hit with the habanero spice. What it starts off with is like your standard whip beer, your Belgian style whip beer. Um, you get a nice um, Belgian-y malt and hop flavor profile. Uh, the orange creeps in a bit, um, which is pretty standard for a whip beer. You also get that lime flavor as well that kind of comes in as you start to, you know, have it on your palate and then at the end you get a nice habanero spice that habanero is not overpowering it is just a very hint like a hint of spice and you don't get a really strong habanero taste either like habaneros can sometimes they have a pretty distinctive flavor and um even with some of the jalapeno beers that i've had before and that habanero sculpin that we had that sometimes the pepper flavor can really just overpower and and it just tastes like peppers Straight up peppers. It's like you took a pepper, you put it in like a soda, and you just let it sit in the soda for a while, and then it dissolved into the soda, and now, now you have pepper soda. Um, this beer's not like that. You get a habanero spice and maybe a very, very mild flavor of habanero, but it doesn't overpower the overall flavor profile. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it's definitely an interesting choice. Um, I like spicy food, but spicy beers aren't really something that I, uh, particularly are that fond of because it's usually too overpowering. Mm -hmm. I think the choice of going with a whip beer was a good choice, not just because we like Belgians, but also because it's light, drinkable, and has like that nice, you know clove and nutmeg taste that you get from you know nice belgian styles allspice you get that nice whip beer taste but then you also it, the beers as you said layered and the the three main things that you get out of it come in layers you get that whip beer taste throughout get a nice lime taste the hint of the orange zest and then on the back end when you get that spice and it's not overwhelmingly spicy, like we're gonna, like you're gonna be like a dead asshole going like this hot, it's hot beer, right? Yeah, you know, not gonna be doing that, but it's like a nice little ooh, that's you know mm. got a kick to it. Yep, it's uh definitely I I like it a lot. Um, now how often would I run to grab this? Probably not that often, just because I think the the habanero part of it is like you know. It is, it's unique, but it's taxing at the same time, even though it's only like a 4.5% beer. So I like what they did. I think it's an inspired idea. I'd like to see, like, you know, kind of like what they could possibly do more with, like, Belgian styles and, like, uh, kind of like, you know, like a margarita chili style. You know, like different fruits, maybe like a mango chili style. That would probably be very interesting and very good. So I'm interested, but, like, overall, and I do think it's very good i just don't think overall i'd be running around to pick it up though if it was just a whip beer with lime and the orange i'd be all over it that that's money to me but the habanero though unique is also unique for a reason yeah and and i do agree that this isn't something that you'd like come home you know, and, and just be like, I'm looking for a, the, the habanero whip beer right now. 
you know, it's, that's something that's really going to wet my whistle. It's not, <laughs> it's not one like that for sure. And definitely it is like a special occasion sort of beer. Uh, it's the same though as like if you were to come – if you like, you know, you had a special stout or something like a, a really strong stout. Like you're not just going to like come home and crack that open at, at a particular time, any particular time, like a, like another type of beer or like a Pilsner. This is a very particular beer that you would have at a particular time. Um, you wouldn't just choose it randomly. And I, I do agree with that. I think, though, when, for that special occasion, when you're feeling like that type of beer is a really good um, offering from Fifth Hammer. I'm really impressed with the way that they've been able to pronounce all of those flavors in the flavor profile at some point. Um it it does remind me as well, not that they're remotely the same style, but the um, the Mexican hot chocolate beer that I had from um, um, Duclaw as part of their um, Pastriarchy series. Um, that one also is like, – like, like Martin said, it's not one that you would go for all the time. Um, you're not going to just go and crack one open whenever you feel like it. It's uh, – again, it has like that spiciness of cinnamon on the back end. And this beer reminds me of that too. It's it's one that you know you'd have it for a special occasion. Um, it's good when you have it, but you you definitely aren't going to want it all the time. And that's why beers like this should come in a four pack. The, a, a four pack of this is a perfect um, way to sell this beer because it's not one that you're going to need a whole bunch of. You're going to get it. You're going to have a few slowly. You know, it's not going to be one that you're going to pound down. Um, so four is great packaging for this. Now others, I would argue the four pack is probably not a great packaging uh, marketing material. Like to pay 25 bucks for a four pack of something that you can slam down that I have qualms with, but for <laughs> this one particularly solid choice, solid purchase for is as uh Goldilocks would say, just right. <laughs> All right. All right, uh, a bulletin from the French Dispatch just came down. We're going to cover it. Oh, what's that? Uh, the bulletin is, this is an anthology movie. <clears throat> You're also forgetting the rest of the title. It's the French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. I'm sorry. I didn't have it in front of me, so I couldn't uh, couldn't go the whole way. But you're right. should do it a favor. And give it the full name at least the first time. And then I'm just going to call it the French Dispatch because I'm lazy from now on. So I actually – so I didn't – like I didn't do a lot of research about the movie because I like to be surprised. I don't really like to do the whole watch a trailer, watch the – you know, watch the uh, teaser, watch the preview, read the synopsis, read the early reviews. I don't do that stuff. For one thing, because I am a reviewer itself, even though I'm not like technically going to officially review the French Dispatch, I, I don't consider like what we do on Blood and Black Rum podcast a uh, uh, official review. We we kind of break it down. We we discuss the fun stuff. We discuss the you know the themes and stuff. But we don't do a full review. We don't say like this movie. You know, this here's the merits. Here's the you know here's the the awful awful things about it. Um, we sometimes skip over some of that stuff. But uh, I don't read all of that stuff because I don't really want to have my uh, opinion swayed even before I watch the movie. So I didn't really go into this movie knowing too much about it. Knew there was a shitload of people. 
I knew that it it was based a, around a newspaper um, or a periodical, and that's pretty much about it. So I did not realize that it was a at its heart an anthology movie, which Wes Anderson really hasn't done before. He hasn't done an anthology. He's done piecemeal elements in a movie. And in general, he tends to model his movies after other forms of media. But he's never done something specifically like this. So did you, when you went into it, did you know that it was an anthology movie uh, realizing that it was going to tell, you know, three effectively disparate stories? Uh, Yeah, I did. I've seen the – I saw the trailer – I uh, read a little bit of the synopsis mm. beforehand, so I kind of had an idea. I think it's interesting that I usually, I, I, I usually like you. I usually don't, but this is a film that's you know <clears throat> intrigued enough by that. You know, I kind of wanted to have an idea of like what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, the only reason we were able to watch it is because I bought it at Walmart the other day, and I was shocked and chagrined that this fucking movie was available on Blu-ray at Walmart in our <laughs> small little town. Yeah. So I was like, well, I got to pick it up because I have like almost every other Wes Anderson film. But, you know, and I, like I said, I've been keenly looking forward to seeing it because Wes Anderson is one of my favorite directors, as we talked about when we did like the Life Aquatic and uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. He's one of my favorite directors. And anytime I, there's, you know, he's got new content coming out. Greatly look forward to it because he's got great artistic vision, great style, great storytelling, and then his ensemble that he usually gets together for a cast. There's a lot of regulars in there, and they're always great. Yeah, you know? yeah. I so I think it's interesting about the anthology piece because I can see some people coming into this movie really not knowing what they're getting into, and maybe not realizing immediately that this is an anthology of of different stories because i would say that though the the newspaper the you know the periodical part of this kind of makes that apparent um it's not super apparent until you get to like the second story that is completely different where and i feel like at some point people not realizing it's an anthology are going to be looking for the connections between them and looking for those connections is not going to get you anywhere. You know, you're kind of meant to take each story as it is. And I think that's part of the French dispatches, um, you know, joie de vivre is, <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> I had to pull that out. I mean, come on. Uh, is that, you know, it takes three different, very, very different stories and puts them together in a movie that ends up making some sort of sense to the viewer, uh, depending on what you want to glean from it. So, which I, which I think too, it take it's kind of taking the trope of like because West, like again, as we said, like Wes Anderson's style is always you know very kind of uh, quirky, very stylistic, you know, ingrained in like sixties uh, pop uh, pop iconography. Mm-hmm. And some seventies pop like iconography and you know French cinema style, mm-hmm. and he's always had these very these characters that are not very colorful, very 
idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. you know, in every film. So, like, in, they're always about, you know, these prodigies who have fallen, you know, these fallen prodigies. And here, like, right from the get-go when they're talking about the French Dispatch, the, the reporters that we meet throughout this, as the film states, they're like, you know, the best of the, you know, and best expatriate, you know, journalists that you could find. And then we get to see, you know, their each one of their like little stories that you know they write and actually you know contribute to the last issue of the French Dispatch. Yep. Um, and the beginning actually ends with an ending because it really starts with the death of Bill Murray's character, who is you know the 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 guy the the editor who has really made the French Dispatch into what it is, who's really brought together this team of journalists. Uh, and it it starts with an ending, uh, not really a sad ending, and that's kind of where Wes Anderson goes as well. Is that he has you know he he spins tragedy into things, he spins comedy into things, um, sardonic humor and stuff like that. But at its heart, it doesn't really ever lean too heavily into any one of the things. They kind of like meld together as tragedy and comedy tend to do into something that you can't you know it's it's really you can't separate the two. You get both. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not super comedic, though it, it is very funny in parts um, with its, you know, like I said, sardonic uh, elements and satirical elements and wry wit. And then it's also got the tragedy element to that of, you know, there's deaths, there's unrequited love, there's, uh, you know, blossoming romance and and things like that that. Um, that all come together into this one really um, intricate story about various things that happened in this fictional place called Ennui. Um, I think that's interesting to start with the obituary um, and to work from there. Uh, and it really sets up the, like the, the nice form of the French dispatch being centered around a periodical. Um, like I said, you know, Wes Anderson has done this previously. A lot, all of his movies center around some some form of media to some extent. You know, a play, uh, a documentary, um, you know, a book. Th- a book. Yep. They they kind of he like takes those those ideas of media and then turns it in. You know, while you're watching, obviously another form of media, cinema, he turns it into a different form of media that normally you would not see put into film and the French dispatch does the same thing except for journalism and, you know, newspaper slash magazines. Um, I think to some extent, the French dispatch, it, it will uh, remind people of the New Yorker, <laughs> you know, in terms of the pretension in some capacity. Um, and this is a good, you know, little tangent for me too. I actually, uh, over Christmas, I started reading the, uh, the New Yorker's uh, Christmas with the New Yorker. And um, it basically, it compiled a bunch of Christmas stories that had been published in the New Yorker throughout the years, like from literally from like the thirties on. And uh, I had some pretty good stories in it. And I was like, wow, I was really impressed, but I had tried to read the New Yorker like once before, like literally just sit down and read a magazine. And I was just completely turned off by like the, the insider nature of it. Like, you know, I live in New York, but I don't live in New York City. And that's really like what you had to be in order to read the New Yorker like front to back and get all of the things that the New Yorker was talking about. Like if you weren't 
an insider of New York City or the surrounding borough areas, like this magazine was not for you. <laughs> and I think which, the, oh, which go ahead. is well, to say which is like the only like I've never read the New Yorker. I, I know of it, and I know it's like uh, you know a basically a cultural you know journalistic magazine based basically just for the city mm. like my main experience with it is just the king of the hill joke where hank hill's like somebody who lives in arlen texas he's like oh i got another one of those letters peggy from the new yorker i'm gonna write them back this time i do not wish to be subscribed to your publication i think they'll get the message this time <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like like I think the the French Dispatch is doing that. It, yeah, it's doing it in an in a different way. The French Dispatch is read by loads of people across the country and across the world. Like, yeah, the world internationally, and it's about ennui from Kansas. And it's it's really an interesting idea that t- t- like kind of turns the New Yorker on its head. New Yorker's really insidery. Um, and this, this is beloved by people across the, the, the world basically, um, for giving stories about this one particular locale literally called ennui, which ennui being a French term, but also one that we use in English to mean a sense of sort of boredom of, you know, reticence to, you know, it, it. I think it's really interesting that they he, he took that. And, you know, it's really, again, it's like if you know the word ennui, it's kind of hitting the nail on the head, right? Not not only that, but the river is on the Blase River. And it, so it's if you know those terms, it's kind of on the nose, but intentionally so. Yeah, you sat there when you saw that. You were like doing that. <laughs> Oh, I, yeah, I, I chuckled that, to myself in my... Was, it, was, was that your kind of pretentious laugh that you had going on when you I, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, um, I actually, I dropped my baguette. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I touched my, uh, thin mustache, ran, ran my fingers over my thin mustache and, and I giggled like a, like a French, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> And I said, I know those terms. <laughs> yeah, no. I, li- I, I like too how you took on we, you know, that's also English. Like, who the fuck sprinkles on we into the. Oh. Well, so, I don't know. Because on we is not really boredom. You know, it it kind of it gets used interchangeably with boredom, but it is. I don't know. It's hard to describe. It, it's a sense of. You get a sense of on we. And it's not boredom, but it's another term for a feeling like blase which is also right yeah and blase but you know like i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say that ennui is boredom um but it's it's we so so i would say that some people do use it in in everyday speech you know i wouldn't sometimes say who who is sprinkling that into their vocabulary i don't know people apparently people apparently the circles i run with where we you know we drink champagne on the weekends and your uh, japanese whiskey drinking with your you know yeah. with your ice balls like my, so it's your whiskey the, it's my uh, men's sartorial club you know <laughs> i'm sorry you don't get invited we well, have uh we go over uh which bow ties are in and which are out 
I think we're on to polka dots at this point. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a reason you don't get invited. You're just not couture enough. Can I can go on all day? Oh man! <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know why that's just so fucking. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, but anyway, moving on, like, the ennui that's, part of it. I was say, that's why you're allowed in Saratoga, and I'm not. That's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, generally, in coffee shops, people behind the, you know, the, the cash register, they always look kind of, like, annoyed with you and angry. But when I walk in, they're, <laughs> they're actually like, wow. Wow. They're actually day. impressed. They're like, wow, he's going to sit there and take a sip and tell us what all seven uh, flavors. Actually, you know what I do when I walk into the coffee shop is I like to be intentionally rude. So they serve me a latte and I take one sip and I walk out. Just leave it there. (laughs) I don't even say it wasn't good. And just take one sip, take my uh, New Yorker magazine and walk out. All right, <laughs> back to the French dispatch on that tangent. <laughs> that's, um, great. that's a great tangent, though. That's a, that's a... <laughs> but I, I like this idea of people reading, you know, like, just in general, the whole idea of the French dispatch being this thing writing about ennui, you know, that's has its home in Kansas, you know, ha, has the, the feeling of home in Kansas uh, with maps on the walls of Kansas in the – the uh new and you know they're printing print shop well i think that's the difference though like they're bringing they're bringing you know this town to across the world whereas the new as you said the new yorker feels much more you know closed off to like you know you're not gonna get this unless you're you know in the city and you know experiencing you know new york city here it's they're you know they're bringing you know the on we to you so even mm-hmm. you in you know middle of flyover country can feel like wow that sounds like a place i want to visit yeah yeah and 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 you know that's the thing is that's what the french dispatch is trying to do is is bring people together over this place that they've never even been to that they don't know about that they're they're getting this information from very great writers who are writing about this one place that is literally to the people that live even to the people that live there you know, somewhat a, a boring area, but they bring it to life with all of these quirky elements. And I think that really goes as part of the meta commentary about Wes Anderson too, because as I said, the French French Dispatch is kind of a culmination of all the things that has made Wes Anderson Wes Anderson throughout the years. It is a probably one of the most Wes Anderson-y movies that you can have. It has all of those elements to it. It has plays. It has books. It has magazines. It has newspapers. It has a a television show wrapped up in it with an interview. Um, they are all combined, and it's almost like you know if H.P. Lovecraft loved to do this too, where he would take he's telling you a story, and the person that's in the story is telling a story, and in that story, a person told them a story, and there's all these stories wrapped up into one large story that you kind of like go down this rabbit hole of people telling stories about stories about stories 
um, like mythicalness almost. And I feel like that's what Wes Anderson is doing here in the French Dispatch is he's going down this rabbit hole of all these different types of ways to tell a story um, involving, you know, even cartoons in, in this case. Um, it, it's, it's a really ambitious film and I would say it's probably one of his most ambitious films um, that kind of goes above and beyond some of the things that he's been doing lately. Um, it's way more complex and intricate than I can remember from any of the other movies that we watched, especially if you compare it to something like the Royal Tenenbaums, which is pretty, you know, like, I don't want to say it's not, um, it doesn't have layers to it. What's that? Choose your words carefully. No, I, I'm I'm saying it's. I'm not saying it doesn't have layers to it, but it is pretty straightforward as a film. Unlike the French Dispatch, which is, you know, quite obviously experimental at times. Right? W- would you agree? Like the Royal Tenenbaums is a fairly straightforward movie if you watch it, and that's kind of why it did pr- fairly well for Wes Anderson too. Is like it what it didn't go too far outside of the norm for what people would expect from a movie. I agree. You know, um, I think, um, honestly, I, th- I think with most of his films, as you said, he kind of picked like an idea and kind of s- stuck and ran with it. I don't think it's still like until the grand Budapest hotel where you got to see like a more of a menagerie of, uh, ideas kind of, you know, taking place and being incorporated. Cause the Royal 10 bombs, which is still my favorite, still my favorite Wes Anderson film, you know, picks, you know, inc- you know, is where his style really starts to come, you know, into form. But it does, as you said, and it has its quirks and, you know, idiosyncraticness to it. But it's, it is more straightforward as a film. Like it's got like a running idea. Same thing with Life Aquatic. Life Aquatic is basically, let's take, Jacques Cousteau, you know, documentary style films, but let's have Bill Murray be Jacques Cousteau and runs with it. Darjeeling Limited, Indian. Moonrise Kingdom, they start to kind of get a little bit more experimental. And I don't think it's to the Grand Budapest Hotel where you got many different ideas going on. Like there's a book, stop motion, you know, time lapses, etc. you know, going on in here. And the French Dispatch is like, let's take it all. Like, as you said, it's like a. A love letter. If you're a fan of his films, like like to like what he has created and what he's capable of doing. Yeah, I, and like I said too, it feels the most Wes Andersony. Wes Andersony. It is hyper stylized. It, it you know like not only does it have all of the stylizations of the previous movies, but we have constant sw- switches between color and and black and white, and those constant switches depend on what scenario they're occurring in to glean meaning from them. So like, you know, we generally speaking films use black and white to show the past, right? Like, Oh, we're going back in time. You know, this is, this happened in the past, but the French dispatch doesn't really do that. It doesn't use color and black and white interchangeably to show past and present or past and future. Um, it uses them more to, to give off a mood, to give off a feeling. Um, you know, especially like during the first story with, you know, Benicio del Toro's character who's doing paintings and uh, those paintings like come to life with the color. 
and then we're sh- sh- you know thrown back into black and white during his normal life in the in prison. It's things like that that he he uses throughout the artistic stylings uh, that I think are really complex and could initiate even more viewings of the movie than just one to to take in all of that information. There's a lot to uh, pull apart and piece together about what is happening in the French Dispatch, which is also ironic because the French Dispatch often asks us, hey, don't even think too critically about this. Literally just take it in and watch. Enjoy. All right, so let's start with the first story, which I will not I, – I will – I will not skip over because it's easy to skip over. It's very short. It's not a long story, but it is a story itself. It's Owen Wilson's part in this movie. Wow. Yeah. Hi. Wow. Because <laughs> wow. Owen Wilson does get a nice little part here. He's a traveling bicyclist. Missed opportunity to have Luke Wilson here too, to have him be like, you know, twin, you know, twin cycling reporters on like a, a dual bike. You know, it would have been great. Where is Luke Wilson nowadays? He's probably just, you know, living off of idiocracy. <laughs> it's a popular, it's newfound popularity. Those residual, he keeps thinking about making a comeback and the residuals come in and he's like, all right, I guess I'll stay home. We're not going to stay home a little bit longer. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that. I love the whole cycling reporter bit. And you got – and Owen Wilson's just great. Just like him, you know, I would love to see him narrate more films because he has such a way when he pronounces words that's well, fucking great. And I think too the interesting thing is when he does the actual voiceover narration, it does sound a bit different than when he does the on-screen presentation of that. Um, I would also watch a – a film or documentary narrated by Mr. Wilson. It's a really funny um, story that, that occurs really quickly. And I think it kind of takes you off kilter a little bit because you're expecting it to be a lot more. You're expecting this story because it starts out. It starts, you know, we get like a nice little five minute spiel about ennui. We get the history. We get the backstory. We get the context of how it's changed over the years. Uh, and it sounds like, it feels like we're going to get a much longer, much broader story about this, this on we as a town. And then it abruptly ends and abruptly ends in a very comedic way. Um, is it, is it a scathing, scathing takedown of capitalism or just funny? Cause you got like, you know, like we don't have the old time butcher, uh, butchers, you know, anymore. This lot here has been replaced as the car drives by me. It's with the shopping center. It's going to be a new concrete hole. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, this is what the flop house used to look like. And now this is what it looks like today. It's got a bunch of punks in it. Here's the Blase River, and now it's got a bunch of parasites in it now. Surprisingly, this is still the same amount of uh, bodies found per, uh, <laughs> per per week in spite of the rising population. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it a scathing take? On capitalism, or is it just saying this is how towns grow up and change over time? Because that's what happens; they develop for good or bad. Is the automobile to blame for Owen Wilson going ass over tea kettle (laughs) down a subway? You decide. Yeah, 
And and so again, like with that story, there is really no conclusion to it. It ends abruptly. <laughs> uh and you know, Bill Murray kind of ta- you know, he takes offense to the fact that Owen Wilson's not really bringing very many cheery details together about <laughs> ennui in this in this exposé, but um you know, that I think I that's what I like about Bill Murray's character in this too is that he's like you know, he's like the most kindly editor that you can have. Like people, you know, when when we see movies about newspapers and stuff, the editor is always an asshole. He's like, you know, looking at the looking at the the writing that you've done and like crossing out literally everything on another paragraph one. No, paragraph two. Gone. <laughs> Bill Murray's like, we're not killing anyone today. Every story he's getting in this. You know, he's he's I, as I say, he's the opposite of what you everyone would think though of your modern day editor, yep. which would be J. Jonah Jameson. You know, yeah. He's like, yeah, you know, couldn't say something nice about it. Cut this, oh. cut that. Yeah, I love, well, that- I love Bill Murray's character here. Um, but the real, the 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 story that really is the first one is Benicio del Toro's story of a prisoner who finds that he, you know, loves artwork. He loves making art um, while he's in prison. For a very ridiculous reason. And then finds that he falls in love with a guard that is his model for uh, his popular modern art pieces that he creates. And, I mean, on its face, that is the generic synopsis of that story. It's very, you know... You can summarize it in two sentences, but the amount that is wrung out of that story is a lot more. Um, you know, with Benicio del Toro's character Rosenthaler, um, we're getting told his artistic past by uh, Tilda Swinton's character Berenson, who uh, is you know basically promoting his work at a museum. Um, so it's kind of we're getting told this story through the lens of her presenting it at a museum through the lens of us seeing that story occur. <laughs> so there's the, the layers upon layers that we get within, within this movie. Um, and it's a really interesting storyline that is probably one of the most, I guess I would say, um, realistic stories that could occur. Uh, it still has a lot of, you know, inane elements to it, but it's the most realistic of the three. We get um, Adrian Brody here, who plays uh, Cadazio, who is a prisoner who gets out and uh, loves Rosenthaler's artwork to the point where he wants to buy it for as modern art. Not because he thinks it's any good, but because he thinks other people will like it and buy it because it's modern art. And it's, I like I like the fact that on the back of his uh, prison uniform it says like evasion fiscal. Yeah. <laughs> like like what's he in here for? Oh, tax evasion. Avaday Avaday fiscal. Yeah, I mean, I like this story because again, it brings to light that fact that, you know, especially in this one, which it's it's technically, you know, a love story. It's a romance uh between Rosenthaler and his his guard, Simone played by Leia Seydoux. Um, 
it's it's a romance that has unrequited love to it and it also shows the both meaninglessness and meaning to art especially modern art that Rosenthaler is creating where there's a great scene where he's taking like a long time to look at and paint uh, Simone's nude body and he's just like sizing it up and you know really getting in there he's painting on her to get the flesh tones right and then you the camera pans around and you see that it's like a whole bunch of like you know pink lines that looks like the opening to the stranger things you know upside down world and you know you're expecting obviously that you're going to see a semi-realistic art piece of a nude form and what you get instead is something a lot more abstract and I like that as well because there is a lot of things to this that mirror that meta commentary. You know, Rosenthaler as a person is abstract. He's not easy to understand. Why does he do the things he does? We don't really know. Doesn't there's no context to it. Even though we get a historical background about what about him, there's really no understanding of him as a character intentionally. They He's make abstract. It, it, they make it very like you know stereotypical like starving artist like mm-hmm. you know he grew up at you know you know rich but then when he went off on his own he was in the squalor and then they show him like squalor like, hungry like him being hungry and then you know at war then he's painting like a general while he's at war it's like gunshots are going around and you know but this you know this this brings to light that that idea about artwork is like artwork is worth what people will pay for it you know based on what they like and don't like and what they ascribe meaning to but those paintings don't resemble the form of a human body to anyone else but they do to Rosenthaler and so him ascribing meaning to those paintings that look like nothing to anyone else um, it shows that the art can have a meaning to someone, even if you don't glean it, even if someone else doesn't glean that meaning. Um, so it's, it's like a commentary on the meaninglessness of trying to ascribe meaning to anything really. And also greatly taking the piss out of, you know, uh, people who like, you know, ascribe to being like, you know art aficionados right because you know adrian brody you know his whole you know being art dealer isn't based on like you know what does he think you know is a worthwhile you know piece of art that you know needs to be shown it's based on how can i make money Mm -hmm. so and that's where you get again as you said like the whole when he's looking at it and he's they're like him and henry winkler and they're like what is it i don't know this is my. It's modern though. It's modern. What's so modern about? It? I don't fucking know. Looks like shit to me. Yeah, but they'll love it. <laughs> right. And and it, you know it brings to to light that fact of like people will think it's good because we say it's good and not understand it and try to ascribe meaning to it when they won't know what the real meaning is. They don't. They don't. They don't know anything about it except for Rosenthaler, who knows what it's worth and what it means to him so it's a it's a it's a great piece uh like i said it's one of the the more realistic elements of this movie um 
and yet it still has all of the artistic stylization that um, Wes Anderson brings. Lots of, you know, symmetry and great uses of color and color palette and things like that. One of the things I do appreciate, especially in this short story, I know it's kind of common throughout the rest of them, but in this one, I like the whole more, like, you know, like 80% of this stories in black and white, but you have those like short moments where it flashes back into color. You know, it goes back and forth from it and gives, you know, a little more nuance and like, you know, depth to what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And also Tilda Swinton's great in this. Yeah. She's fucking hilarious. It's a great delivery. As yeah, the, her, the whole her giving the whole presentation on like, you know, Benicio del Toro and as she's giving this like, you know, Ted talk essentially. You know, she's got these great little lines as she's going through the slides. And this picture here. Oh, that's me naked. (laughs) (laughs) Drink break. Hold on. Drink break. (laughs) We have to comment on Leia Seydoux as well. She she has perfect skin, as they (laughs) they mention in this movie. I didn't realize she was the Bond girl inspector. I didn't either. She is I difficult did, I, to recognize it when she's in like her guard uniform. Yeah, it covers her up well. <laughs> Forget I I do like too, I mean it's not like a big thing, but I do like when she like when she speaks in French, like how the subtitles pop up and how they like, you know Very stylized, some, yeah. You know, sometimes it builds upward, sometimes it builds down, you know, down. You know, it's just like a little a little stylistic flair that, you know, I, I thought was, you know, really interesting and worked well. Oh yeah. Yeah, I I like that a lot. You know, like it's better than having like the very bland standard, like you know, typography at the bottom. And you get that. I was saying you get that throughout the film too. Like, like when you have like these moments where they pop. You know, sometimes when they have, you know, like a word pop up, like this, it'll go from like being in full screen to like four by three, and then like you know the lettering on like the sides of the screen. You know, which also can go with the color changes that might may happen. You know. It's definitely something that has become more prevalent over time. Um, most of the time now in movies, like they use the the texting as like the thing that pops out of the the screen. Um, but Noah Hawley has been you know, Noah Hawley uh, having done like Fargo, the TV show, and um, Legion. Uh, he's been doing a lot more of that too, where he'll he does like the the different types of subtitle um, and the use of the map to to change up you know how we're you know past and present instead of um black and white because that's become really standard to like swap between black and white and color uh when you can really get a lot more use out of black and white and color in different meanings which we see in um this movie in the french dispatch that that uses black and white and color in different you know layers not just to show a passing of time but to show like actual emotion or a fluidity movement um, or meaning to how particular characters are feeling. Um, you know, I, I like that, that experiment, I think that works uh, to some extent in the French dispatch. I think um, at other times the actual usage of the black and white and color um, can be lost on the viewer in the moment because you kind of have to stop and, and analyze 
And <laughs> I think that's another interesting thing about the French dispatch because it is alternately telling you to analyze and not analyze everything, right? It's saying maybe take a step back and enjoy what, what it is and, and maybe don't look for the meaning because the meaning is different for everyone. At the same time, what does, what does this black and white mean versus the color that we just saw? <laughs> and I think that's, you know, like it is a film that is full of, you know, those types of things where, um, you know, it's kind of hypocritical of itself on purpose, pretentious and not knowing it's pretentious, but still being pretentious. It has, it's a film of hypocritical nature. You didn't talk about your frescoes. That that bit is fucking great. When when you have when they all come after you know three years of uh, Benicio del Toro not making any art, which one that's great because of the time skip you get three years later, and then you get Adrian Brody showing up there like it's been three years and we haven't gotten a, to the day we haven't gotten a single new piece of work art you know, work of art from you. What's going on? And he's like, I can't make art anymore. He's like, Well, that's too bad because we are putting on a gallery. Two weeks, so <laughs> you better have something for us. And he's like, "Great." And then you know, Sophia, uh, you know, Simone's like, "Oh, you'll have something." And then you know, we get to watch the, all these people, you know, come into the jail as like you know they're getting ready for the art gallery, and you have a side shot going on of like them bribing like you know all the uh, guards in there, and like you see like you know doling out the money as they're going you know down into the prison. It's hilarious. And then you get to the showcase of Benicio del Toro's, you know, newest, you know, work of art. And like, it's beautiful. He's like 10 different like paintings. Uh, they're kind of in the same vein and style, you know, splatter art style of the one that we originally saw. And you get Adrian Brody. Like, this is beautiful. It's great. We're going to be rich. And then they go, wait, that's not on canvas. That's, that's in the concrete. It's a fresca. God damn it! <laughs> you fucked us. I hate this. Uh, it's just great watching Adrian Adrian Brody portray such a great douchebag, and then like and then with his like you know thin mustache and his hair, it's great watching him go through that that range of emotions and like how he's reacting to it. All right, so the next um, the next story in this movie is a. Uh, one with Timothy Chalamet, who is a youth, and Ennui, who's uh, writing a manifesto about how he feels about the, the current predicament in the government, the mayor of Ennui, and the, you know, the, the army, the war that's going on. And he's clashing with another fellow youth who seems to have a different approach to his manifesto. And not only that, but he's sleeping with Francis McDormand's character, Lucinda Kremitz, who uh, also helps him write part of his manifesto and is telling this story of uh, what's going on. I like I like the reason for the uh, why this revolution is you know these students are uproar and it's because they just want access to the girls' uh, dormitory. Yeah, you know it's you know, just so simple and stupid. Yeah, it's a very youthful thing. It's you know, yeah. like it's like this is an important element in the moment for the youth, but as a whole, 
you know, what what kind of consequence does it have across the st- the town of Ennui? Not that much. And so it it is in part showing the you know the the fu- the the I don't want to say futility, but the the youthful vigor of wasting your time on items that don't necessarily mean a whole lot um, of, of writing a manifesto about something that's really not that important um, in the scheme of things. And that you might find isn't important later on. So it has like that, that humorous sense of, you know, ridiculousness to it. Um, and again, well, especially, especially, especially now that we're in our thirties, it's sure. just, you think about it. It's like, you know, like, Oh, I can remember the pat, you know, you know, the passion of being younger where, you know, you'd be a lot, you know, quick, quicker to fight, a lot quicker to argue, mm-hmm. a lot quicker to, you know, be passionate about something where and, now, you know. And like, think you know I, everything about it. Like, like I think now, like, in the, the thing I can equate to most, like, with, when it comes to like that is, like, sports. I used to, like, when a Bill's loss happened, it used to eat me up for, like, a week and kill me. Now, yeah, it sucks. I, it, I'm... It doesn't really ruin my day anymore. You know, I'm 30 fucking years old. <laughs> you know, different things, you know, to kind of focus about. And that's, you know, kind of, you know, like a nice, you know, what we get in this and, you know, kind of, you know, Frances McDormand's uh, character, like that she kind of tries to relay to, you know, this, uh, these, you know, Zeffirelli, you know, and try to tell him, like, you know, like some of the things that you're kind of worrying about, you know. You're right to worry about them, but, you know, be a little bit more measured. Yeah. And, you know, maybe try not to worry about them so much and just go off and have some fun. You know, mm-hmm. go go make love with, <laughs> you know, with Juliet instead. <laughs> it's uh like so this one was definitely not my favorite of the three. Um, I found it a little bit slower than the other three. Or the other two, I mean. Um, Again, it's just because you're an old fart. Maybe, maybe too busy, too, too busy, la- too busy laughing at your, you know, your little French jokes and <laughs> cafes. I'm too far removed from the youth of this, the youthful vigor of this, where I'm not a revolutionary anymore. But I did find some things to like about it. You know, like I like the whole playing chess as like the uh, the way the way to fight the war. You know, we're we're gonna do chess movements and then. Write it down, call it out to the military, call it, bring it into the mayor. Oh, they moved their knight to C five or whatever. I don't even, I don't even know chess terms. I don't even know, <laughs> know the the lingo. But it's a, uh, I, I I found that detail like very um, interesting. That you know these sorts of things, these these inanities, the absurdity of it, I think is really funny, um, and that's where a lot of the French dispatch's humor comes from is just the, the it's the wryness of something funny because of its absurdity. Um, and in this one makes it, it capitalizes on that. Um, the other thing that I really liked about it is where like right smack dab in the middle of it, as they're talking about uh, Zeffirelli's friend going off to join the military because he was forced to uh, kind of against his will. And he's talking about how, 
Um, you know, he was kind of forced into it, and they don't really think that he's going to come back from that and burn his patch or, or lead the revolution anymore. And then he comes in and tells a story, and they cut away to a play version of it called Goodbye Zeffirelli. <laughs> I thought that was really funny uh, and clever. Of you know, it it does smack of like some sort of like play that uh, a playwright would would end up writing later on in life. Well, that, I think that's what Frances McDermott says. She she's the one that wrote that play later on, mm-hmm. and that's where you know. That 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 is re- you know really cool and you know very <laughs> and, and also very pretentious at the same oh, yeah, time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it, ex- exceedingly dramatic as well, <laughs> but it works great. And it's yeah. you know like a nice little thing, and 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 too like again like I can appreciate you know I can you can appreciate some things that like you know they're kind of being talked about like you know. Um, though this revolutionary, you know, these kids being revolutionary is kind of vague and why they're being revolutionary, you know, it's not, you know, really stating what their political compass really is, you know, vague, you know, it's just vaguely leftist because, you know, it's like manifesto and you get Juliet like arguing like we can't listen to Tip Top because he's part of like the capitalist, you know, system that's owned by the, you know, the corporations that own the banks that own, you know, whereas Efrali is like, oh, I like I like him. They make good music, you know, and you get the little banter. It's not really specific, but I like that, you know, that it's not, you know, specific because it's kind of, you know, as you said, it's it's all absurd and inane at the same time, you know, kind of like what they're arguing about. Because the whole reason that they're having this argument in the first place is over, you know, access to the girl, you know, female dormitories, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, again, inane in itself. So the fact that this whole charade that they go on is you know ridiculous and inane and obscure you know adds to the humor of it all and you know the whole zeffirelli ends up sleeping with francis mcdermott you know and then she's finishes the manifesto and it's like oh yeah i added an appendix and he's like appendix why would you have an appendix and she's like trust me you want an appendix you know it's like a great little absurdly weird little bit to it that i appreciated and you know it's funny yeah, yeah, I I I did enjoy this move, this uh, short. Uh, it just wasn't my favorite of the three, but I think it does still have a lot of great elements to it. I think uh, Francis McDormand is a really good de- deliverer of this story. Um, Timothy Chalamet does a really good job of of really playing up the naivety of the youth, um, kind of comp- compared to Juliet, who is somewhat more um, refined, but still. Uh, kind of misunderstanding like the the scope of this this uh, manifesto, um, you know, and then it has that bit of tragedy at the end as well. Um, it, that is again ridiculous and um, kind of like a a Che Guevara sort of thing of you know being becoming a an icon. For this one little element of, I was waiting for that when like you're running the pirate radio, and then uh, waiting for when he goes up to fix it. Like, all right, when's he gonna get electrocuted? As he's <laughs> yeah. sitting up there, you know, casually smoking a cigarette and you know, plucking away at it, and then you get him, you know, electrocuted. And... But I mean, I definitely, as I say, it's definitely like you know, I I wouldn't say Juliet's more the more sophisticated of the two. It's it's she's definitely shown to be you know kind of hypocritical because she's you know 
sitting there bitching to Zeffirelli about like, you know, like he's not, you know, following, you know, the true revolutionary principles, but at the same time, she's breaking out like her little powder thing and, you know, Francis McDormand like calls her out on it, like, you know, like, you know, you really need to kind of pay, you know, more attention to what's going on and kind of, you know, go with the flow. And that's how you get to the whole go make love to each other. <laughs> you know. But So then that brings us to the final piece, which is uh concerning uh police chef, which is sort of like this fictionalized version of a uh, like almost like a Hercule Poirot from um, Agatha wow. Christie, <laughs> which is you know like her Belgian detective who you know always solves cases without any literally any evidence, only conversation pieces, and he's like the best conversationalist to glean all of the information that he needs to solve a murder. Um, and so this is like set with Roebuck Wright, played by Jeffrey Wright, who. Uh, is the reporter who has uh, taken it upon himself to visit this famed uh, police chef Nascafier and write the tale about him? And which, so it, well, even more impressive, it's set at modern times, which in this is like the early seventies. He's wearing a beautiful leisure suit while giving like an interview on like a sh- like a PBS show. And it's one the leisure suit he's he's wearing is great, and you also get the little quirk from Jeffrey Wright that we look, gleam from this is that he's uh he has a perfect memory of everything that he's ever read, and he then he just starts rattling off this tale of like uh me you know of this story, and that part you know is is quirky ridiculous but funny at the same time. And not only that, but he's interviewed by none other than Cotton Weary, <laughs> Lee Schreiber, who shows up here. I don't believe that he's been in a Wes Anderson movie before. It's kind wow. of an odd uh, cameo appearance from him. Like, I definitely was not expecting that. But, yeah, this this is super interesting. Yeah, because he's a, you know, he, he, he remembers every word he's written. He literally is just reciting this story off on this talk show uh, and telling the story of Nescafe, um, who, while he was having dinner at, with N- eating a course for Nescafe, uh, his, you know, his um, host son was, is kidnapped by, uh, you know, a gang of criminals. And then he gets involved as well with this search for the, for the missing son. Um, it's overall, really ridiculous it's uh but i but i like the the use of the french mystery the 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 uh murder cozy to tell the story of a, a police chef who is ultimately successful in um you know basically solving this case and and getting back the kidnapped son um this one like I think that it just works on all cylinders and not only that, but it incorporates a great cartoon element to it at the end of the short as well, where it wouldn't really make sense to, especially within the scope of, you know, a Wes Anderson movie to have 
a lot of like action sequences with car chases and things like that. They actually take that aside. They don't film that. It's not really like elegant looking. And then they set it with a nice, you know, New Yorker style cartoon um, that they shoot instead. I really like that. I really like the whole, the cartoon element that comes into play here with it for yet another form of media. Also Benny Hill-esque. Yeah. Yeah, very Benny Hill-esque, especially when they do the whole, like, around and up, back up the stairs, down the stairs, around, back up the stairs, and then <laughs> through, it drive off again, the same place. I was laughing so hard at the fucking uh, wrestler guy, you know, strongman guy wearing, like, the wrestling belt. Yeah. You know, like, hanging out to the car, then he gets launched through the window, and then after they make the rounds and they drive off again at the same spot, he jumps immediately back out of the hood of the car <laughs> it was really, it was really funny. I think I this know. one was my favorite short of the three, um, simply because Jeffrey Wright is great at delivering the narrative here. Just very overall, like very easy listening to listen to this story. And it's not only that, but it's very entertaining as well from a from a, a viewing standpoint. Especially as you know, because this film is at like um, an hour and forty eight minutes long. Uh, you, you've kind of had various different elements to watch, sometimes overwhelming in the scope of getting color and black and white and things like that. And then you can kind of get a different medium by watching that cartoon. It kind of sets aside some of the um, some of like the feelings that you had from watching the, the previous shorts. Um, you know, it gives this one a different feeling, different uh, movement to it. Um, and I think that this one really became my favorite of the three. I don't know why, but like one of the lines that had me cracking up that Jeffrey Wright describes right in the beginning when he's tr- getting lost in the police station and he's trying to find uh, where uh, the commissioner is to have this dinner. And he's looking at the card that he's giving. It's this detailed card. He flips it over. And it's got like a detailed map of how to get there. And he's just like, and it's a little little subtle nuance if you don't listen you're gonna miss it but he's like you know that kind of shows like a subtle character trait that's not like greatly important but you know it's a little nugget there is when he's like where he goes you know and after i'm looking at the card you know i suffer from homosexuality's greatest sin a lack of cartography knowledge (laughs) (laughs) and then you just watch him stumbling around you know which kind of gives, you know, uh, at, like as we'll talk about in a second, like the ending of this where, you know, when he's talking to Bill Murray about like, you know, you know, the overall experience and how he wrote the story, like that little line there could give you like at the how this all wraps up and ends like, you know, and how it's kind of the whole thing is a take on his overall loneliness and being in France and not having anyone to, you know relate to you know that little line there does give a little more you know context and nuance to like how this ends like it is could it be a factor in like how this wraps up maybe maybe not you know and how he connects to uh, you know uh niscafair at the end you know? which, which one are you what line are you talking about like when like him like su- subtly like that mentioning like like that he's gay oh right 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 yes like the yeah the subtle the subtle elements of of that and not only that, but just the writing in general of him talking about how food became how what he wrote about because that was the thing that was always there for him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like a, a great piece because not only is it actually well written, like as a piece, he uh, narrates it beautifully. Exactly. Like, yeah. He just he just has an eloquence to him, and like how, like as meaty and verbose as his like you know this writing is, it's you know you can still follow it even if you're not like you know somebody well you know who knows words like he gets your attention throughout the entire thing yeah i i think again though all of the three shorts in the french dispatch they all mean something to the overall theme the one that really brings it all together is this one um quite literally i mean at the end of the movie at the end of the short after you know basically bill murray's character gets done reading this you know he he says you know you know, he's talking about the story and there's a part that he, he says, you know, Zephyr or, um, not Zephyr, uh, Nescafier doesn't really even get much of a part in this story because it's supposed to be a, a story about him. It's supposed to be like, you know, how he's a great chef and he barely gets to say anything or do anything in this. And, uh, Roebuck, um, says that he actually cut some of what he said because it was too sad. And that really brings all of this together, of the loneliness of feeling like you don't belong and feeling like you had to leave somewhere because you didn't belong and going someplace else that may bring you into its fold. Um, I think is really the idea of the French dispatch that we get from this, this cut line, but more so it's also a meta commentary about what we ascribe meaning to, like I said, in the, the opening story, um, you know, he says that Bill Murray gives a great deadpan comment. That's just says, well, you should have kept this in. This is, this is like, this brings the whole story together. This is what gives it meaning. And Roebuck says not to me. And that's a great showcase of what meaning really is to people. You know, that line is what is supposed to bring the whole film together too. It's what <laughs> it, it's kind of ironic that that line being cut from that to come into this, to have Bill Murray say that gives meaning to the film as well and brings the whole three stories together. Yet at the same time, it's asking don't ascribe meaning to it because it means if, something different to everyone. It's very, but at the, but at the same time, even more nuanced. Bill Murray's an editor, right? So he's somebody who can find. You know, editors are supposed to be the ones who can. You know, over. You know, with oversight and, you know, know what like what is you know important, what's not. Because again, we what's get to the see lead? Him, you know, we get to see him throughout. You know, kind of as these stories wrap up, he talks to these you know these reporters about like you know what they should keep in, what should they should keep out. I mean, it's not that like ingrained, like it's not like that engrossing, like these like large bits, but there are, there are bits in the film. And that I think, you know, that too also shows like, you know, you're right. Like, yes, like we all have different meanings and we ascribe different importance to the meanings and things that we see throughout. But like Bill Murray is somebody who, you know, has a sense of like, you know, you may be underestimating the importance of that. Like maybe, you know, more people, if you put that into your story, you may not, you know, gain something from it, but a lot of people probably will gain something from that. Yep. You know, so it's like definitely, you know, 
a good critique going, you know, a metaphor going back and forth on like, you know, um, artist, you know, inter, you know, artist, uh, intention versus, you know, uh, the interpreter, you know? Yeah. I, I think that, that line, that one bit in this movie is really has a lot going on to it. It, it is the most complicated element to this, this film. It has, meaning to it 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 pulls the theme together it also asks you to try to not find meaning in certain things it has lots of subtext to it um it's a and and not only that but it's it's presented with such a deadpan delivery from bill murray which makes it even more humorous um that it can be easily missed in the scope of everything that we've seen thus far in this movie and so I have to say that the French Dispatch, while I don't generally think that many movies are worth multiple viewings, like just for the hell of it, the French Dispatch is one that really does warrant watching again to see, you know, what is it that I missed in these elements of it trying to take in what I'm seeing, which is somewhat chaotic, um, and then understand and interpret what's happening and the subtext behind it. Um, I think there is value in watching the French dispatch and not trying to take in any of that and just saying, I'm watching this because it is entertaining because it has a very style, like a nice style to it that I enjoy. And I'm going to watch it because of that enjoyment. And that's it. I'm not going to ascribe meaning to any of these three stories and I'm just going to enjoy them for what they are. And then you can watch it all over again and say, now I'm going to look for all the meaning in all of these things. And that's, again, that's that hypocritical element to the French Dispatch that I think is really good, makes it very complex. And like I said, I think it's probably one of the most ambitious Wes Anderson movies that he's made and a culmination of everything that he's made so far. I agree. Anything else that we didn't cover? I think we talked in depth about pretty much everything that I can think of. I said my piece. Oh, don't forget the obituary. Oh, yeah, the obituary itself. I mean, that that is really important, too, of bringing all these writers together who are generally, we see, kind of locked to, alone in their own rooms, um, writing by themselves, again, with that loneliness that Roebuck is talking about. Um, they come together for this obituary to write it together uh, as a group. And I think that's that has a beautiful element to it. Um, bringing uh, where death brings people together um, unexpectedly, uh, which is a running theme throughout most of Wes Anderson's movies as well. And throughout this, because again, like Frances McDormand, like when we go going back to uh, Frances McDormand and her character, you know, that's something that they talk about. Like she's, you know, they call her, people call her an old maid. And she says, you know, I'm not, you know, she keeps saying that she's not alone, that she's not alone, you know, and then same thing like Benicio del Toro, when you get to, you know, that bit, it's all, you know, his unrequited love for, you know, Simone, you know, so it's a running theme. The obituary is great just because of the fact that Bill Murray's dead and he's just lying on his yeah. desk. They just leave, <laughs> as they're writing the obituary, the man's dead, had a heart attack. They just keep him on the desk as they're going around. They bring a cake in, a birthday cake candles lit and all and they're like no no he's 
he's dead. He's dead. And then, like, Owen Wilson's like, well, I'll have a piece. Have a piece. And then yeah. and they start passing the cake. Over. I probably would do that, too, honestly. <laughs> just like, oh, uh, it's just so great. You know, like, oh, and then they just, you know. <laughs> I probably I probably would have done the same thing. Like, 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 well, the cake's. Well, it's here. I know, yeah, you don't want the cake to go bad, you know. Yep. With that, you know, I I do love that. I do appreciate that. Because again, like, uh, which we didn't bring up in the beginning is when we find out that Bill Murray's dead, like, uh, and that he's built this, you know, this magazine up that his in his will and testament, you know, what he wants is as soon as he's dead, magazine's going to get dismantled. Mm-hmm. They're going to, you know, whole thing. He's going to sell off, paid off their contracts. And it's done, and you know, it won't be continuing on anymore. So, like this obituary and issue that they will be doing for the French Dispatch is going to be their last one. And so, and then you get to you know see them as they're writing the obituary. You know, shoot ideas. You know about how to actually write it. You know, it's a nice little touching part at the end. Yeah, ties everything together beautifully. Yep. All right, so we got a rate. The French Dispatch. So, on a scale of 0 to 10, uh, sartorial, um, uh, I guess, let's say, sartorial style, what would you give the French Dispatch? I give it a 9. I really like it. Um, It's definitely one, as you said, that I'm probably going to go back and give, you know, more viewings to because it does have a lot of nuance. And layers to it. Um, it's definitely so far Wes Anderson's most ambitious film, um, and it's definitely his most Wes Andersony film. It takes a lot of themes and ideas and styles that he's kind of built upon the past, you know, thirty years, and given like this nice new context and nuance to. Um, the idea is intriguing. The themes are prominent and interesting. And I think, you know, you can gleam a lot or you can, you know, not gleam anything. It's definitely got a lot there for you to think about, even though, as you know, we said, we both kind of agree the film's not really trying is trying to tell you not to try to think too hard about some stuff. Um, the cast is great. Everyone is delightful in this film. You know, Bill Murray's great. Tilda Swinton's great. Jeffrey Wright is amazing. You know, Francis McDormand's great. Um, even some people, like there's some people in here that we said, like we didn't even mention Christoph Waltz is in the film yeah. and Willem Dafoe. They don't really do much, but they're there. And, you know, um, stylistically the film, you know, looks great. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's nuanced. It's, you know, it's an auteur's film. And if, you know, if you like somebody who's got, you know, a certain style and a certain, you know, kind of method and like, you kind of like appreciate the, you know, art of filmmaking, it's definitely going to be something that I would say I'd recommend to watch. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I would, I would give it a nine as well. I really enjoyed this film. I think it's, a, like I said, a culmination of all Wes Anderson movies. So if you really like them, um, I think that you will also enjoy this one. Um, at the same time, if you don't really love Wes Anderson movies, um, I, I think that there's still value in watching it again, because the film kind of asks you and says, you know, even if you don't like it, understand it, 
uh, you could still appreciate it. You could still appreciate the the ideas and the story that are here and the humor that occasionally crops up. Um, I think there's appreciation involved whether you in, actually enjoy Wes Anderson's style or not. Um, I think that it has a great style. It uses lots of things to its advantage. It uses matte. It uses um, color, black and white. Um uses all kinds of different mediums to tell the story it's it's very you know ambitious um and and certainly complex and i think the complicated nature of the ideas that it's portraying um in their ridiculousness really lends itself to the whole theme of togetherness and um the meta commentary that it brings as well of you know being hypocritical and ascribing meaning to everything and and then also trying to enjoy something without having a meaning behind it. Um, I think we did a pretty good job talking about it. Honestly, um, sometimes films like this are difficult to kind of put into words. Um, but I think we did a pretty good job breaking it down. Um, and, and discussing, you know, what exactly the French dispatch does really well. Um, but again, the best way to experience it is just to watch it. And I would recommend people do so. I think the films, I mean, again, because I, not just because I like his, his films, but if, if honestly, I think the litmus test would be this, watch the bit from the Royal Ten Bobs where they're talking about the gypsy taxi and you got Dudley sitting there going, there's a dent in that taxi. There's another dent, another dent, another dent. If you don't find that scene hilarious, you're probably not going to find this. You're not going to probably find the humor in this film because mm-hmm. it's very. I'm not say. I'm not going to say like the the. I'm not going to say the humor is like smart. Like you know, like you got to be like you know, incredibly you know intelligent to get it. <laughs> yeah. But like you know, it's it's definitely very dry humor. You know, and if dry humor's you know. Dry, dark humor is not your thing. Then it's it'll be lost on you probably for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so that that ends our French Dispatch conversation. What do we uh, What do we got next? I don't know. What are I we think we we can probably try to we'll try to do Spider Man next. Um, I think by at this point. And we may be able to uh, to see it. So we'll try to do... I, I think we'll try to do Spider-Man. Um, but but that's always subject to change. So everyone's aware. Don't tune in next time and think, that's how, Spider-Man? Uh, well, that's why uh, we haven't done Scream like we are supposed to. That's, that's true as well. But we'll do that. Do it soon. Um, so yeah, we'll do that. We'll be back in two weeks. And... Uh, and then actually, thinking maybe after that episode, we're going to be on to our Valentine's Day episode. Look at that. I'm on Google. Like, uh, I typed in French Dispatch themes. And, like, you know, people also ask, is French Dispatch boring? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of find it hard to believe that you would think it boring because there is so much going on. Like, it's it's chaotic in the amount of things that are going on. So, like, do, you know... It's hard to believe sometimes that people would find it boring. Um, I don't know. Like, I can see them not liking it for some reason. But to find it boring is kind of a stretch. 
Is French, is French Dispatch funny? The New Yorker says it's Wes Anderson's most freewheeling film. Yeah, that is true. On the, I don't know if you saw on the poster. Uh, the poster uh, quote is hilarious in, in its wordiness. Like just meeting the French Dispatch's verbosity. Brilliant. A, br- a breakless freewheel through a teeming bazaar. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> Who is this Roebuck Wright writing this? You said bizarre wrong. Bazaar. Oh, that's not, no. That's how I say it. That's wrong. Why you say bizarre? Yeah. How bizarre? No, it's bazaar. B a z a a r. No one says bazaar. <laughs> I hope you're joking. That's. Yeah, no, I literally say Bazaar. That's how you say it. Um, the other, the other funny thing though, um, is my I got in a argument with my dad the other day. We were playing a game. Oh jeez. And we um, I actually think my oh there we go. Okay, sorry, my headphones cut out for a second. Uh, we were playing a game, and he was describing to me the word. Super bass, you know, the, the song. And he said, he gave me the word for, he gave me super, I guess, super. And then he said, you know, like deep sea fishing, the, <laughs> the fish. And I'm like, Dance. but then, then I knew what it was. Cause I knew it was, I knew it was super bass. I just put it together. I was like, Oh, super bass. And he's like, no. And I'm like, super bass. And he's like, no, it's bass, <laughs> super bass. <laughs> And I'm like, it's not fucking bass, dad. It's the same word, bass. And he's like, bass is B-A-S-E. And I'm like, no, it's fucking bass, like the sound. So we had a or big the, argument about or that. The guitar, a or the guitar, the uh, bass yeah, guitar. Yeah. So we, had a bit, so we had an argument about that for a little bit. But, <clears throat> yeah. Homonyms. Sometimes homicidal. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> All right. We'll end it there. Got my sartorial club to go to. <laughs> Hold on. I think, a, I think a Turkish espresso is waiting for me upstairs. I bet. I you wish. Bo- you bougie bastard. All right. You're, you're what the revolutionary students were fighting against. That's right. All right. Well... Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you appreciated our French Dispatch episode. If you did, let us know. We'll do some more Wes Anderson movies. If you didn't, that we don't care. We'll do some more Wes Anderson movies. Um, but anyway, you can find us on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, our home base on Anchor.fm. Uh, you can subscribe to us and leave us a nice review. Um, we are also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us on there, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. We have a... Email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. You can write to us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what episode, what uh, movies you want us to cover on episodes, and we'll take that into consideration. And you can also donate to us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bloodandblackrumpodcast. We appreciate anything you can send our way. We'll spend it on beer uh, for the show. So thanks in advance. Uh, until next time, we hope to hear from you and see you back and listening to our next episode in two weeks. Until then, take care. <laughs>